For those of you that are off to the side, just so you know, that wasn't meant to have smoke coming from over there and, and me coming out with a basketball in my hand to come up show off or anything. It actually was on the screen, uh, the showing of the Ten Commandments being delivered. You know, we might know the Ten Commandments as being the law of God. And you might know that law has a way of making us all feel a little bit, what should I say, restricted. We call and claim that the United States of America is the land of the free, right? Land of the free, home of the brave. Yet the United States of America has the most elaborate and lengthy code of law than any country in the world. Now, some of you might say, well, yep, so much for freedom, right? Well, the reality is this, that with having traveled the world, I have learned that the, the well-written laws that are enforced actually do bring freedom. I was once on a jury, on jury duty in Harrisburg, and I saw this inscription uh, in the courtroom, and it was a statement from William Penn you know, the founder of this region of the United States. And, and he coined this. He said that law, with law, there is liberty. Without it, there is chaos. So law is not meant to be something that is going to create restriction, but rather give liberty. It gives freedom to us all. But laws are always written in response to some kind of reality. There's always a reality that they reflect, that they speak of, that they're referring to. So for example, some of these laws are referring to a reality that's more regional uh, or into a particular community. Consider this. In one of our states, there is a law that says you are not allowed to take a selfie with a sleeping bear. Now you might be asking yourself, what, United, what state would have such a law? And, that's, and that state is Alaska. Apparently tourists over the last few years with smartphones were, were being told by tour guides, oh yeah, this is a, a den and there's a, a hibernating bear inside of there. And, and so they would go in there and real quick snap a selfie and it would wake the bear. And not always did things go so well. Maybe they need to learn the old saying, don't poke the bear. So that's an actual code of law. How about this? In California, there is a law that says, don't cut down a Joshua tree, lest you face a $4,000 fine or up to 20 days in jail for cutting down a tree. In Florida, it is still on their code of law that if you steal a horse, it's punishable by hanging. All right, so you horse lovers, go to Florida. That's a place where your, very, your horses are protected. How about Pennsylvania? Unique codes. There is an entire manual found on Pennsylvania Department of Transportation on horse and buggy guidelines. Not too many states would have that one, right? What's interesting is I was reading that because it got me curious. I'm looking through it, like looking at the laws, and there was something just noticeable that was missing in that law. There is no driving age limit for a horse and buggy. You can be five years old, drive horse and buggy on a, on a highway in Pennsylvania. 
And so it's, it's a very interesting how all this works. How about the borough of Lidditz, Pennsylvania, where we sit right now? When I was looking at the local codes for here, the first code you come to is concerning air guns, a BB gun. And there was a substantial amount of guidelines on air guns. And it was like multiple paragraphs. And the next thing after that was about alcohol. And it had a single two or three sentences about alcohol. But with air guns, you can't purchase them. You cannot sell them. You cannot use them in the borough of Lidditz. Something tells me there's a story behind that, right? There's some kind of reality that says this law needs to be stated. Now, we can raise our eyebrows. We can kind of like think this is a little ridiculous, some of these laws, but they always refer to some kind of reality, even down to there's a probably a good reason why they have to have a law to not take selfies with bears. There's reality. But when God gives us a law, it's speaking to a reality. In particular, when we know the Ten Commandments, which were given by God himself, it is referring to a reality that is there. So consider those Ten Commandments now. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven image that you worship as God. You shall not misuse the name of God. We must keep the Sabbath day holy. We are to honor our mother and our father. We are to not murder. We are not to commit adultery. We are to not steal. And we're to not give false testimony or to lie. And we're not to covet. Those ten things, that Decalogue, speaks to something of a reality that we can then embrace and understand that there must be a God then, if God's giving this to us, it's speaking to that this God is holy and that we as created beings, people, are not. The holiness of God, perfect, intact, no ulterior motives, just, loving, and good. Mankind fails at each of these ten regularly. We do not always honor God. We often create idols out of other things. And then we often to neglect there's a day we're to keep holy. Murder is something that we can probably live by more easily. Committing adultery, if you remember that even Jesus says, even if you look upon somebody who is not your spouse with lustful thoughts, you're guilty in your heart of adultery. Stealing, lying, wanting that which is not yours, coveting. It's clear that if this is what God does not want us to do, that the, that the opposite is true of God, is that he is holy. He would never set up another false God. He is always going to hold to a Sabbath day. He is going to institute the ideal family where there is an honoring of the parents. He would not murder someone. He would never commit adultery against himself or steal or, or that way ever lie or covet. 
These things point to his nature, and they point to ours. But it also reveals there's a disconnect between us and God. There's a disconnect. If he is holy and we are not, then there is a relational breakdown that is created. Now, we can know this because we have a written law from God. Would God ever hold accountable somebody who has never seen that written law? Now, I've just spoken the ten written laws of God. But what if you were somewhere else where you never saw that? Would God expect the same things of you if you did not have the written law before your eyes? Would there still be some kind of accountability that when your final breath on earth has happened, that you come before God, that you could somehow claim, well, I never knew you were God. I never knew that you were holy. I never knew that I was flawed. Is that even possible? Well, I'm going to actually read a passage in in, uh, Romans chapter 1 that will confront that question whether or not it's possible to be held into account with the written law or without it, can we still have a relationship with God? Or is it separable by even an an unwritten law? So here we go, Romans 1, verse 18, and it says this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their foolish thinking, their thinking became futile and foolish as their hearts were darkened. That although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal man. And then birds and animals and reptiles. You see that even with left to ourselves, even if we have never seen a written code, that if we were to try to deny a holy God, you're still going to have the propensity to want to create a God for yourself. Because even in this text it says, for the one who just denies the holiness or the wrath or justice of God, what are they going to do? They're going to exchange that reality for their own reality. They're going to start creating things that look like human beings and call them God. They're going to create things that look like animals and call them God. See, what happens when you try to replace the idea of God with something else, you are going to create something else. We are designed to acknowledge that there is something superior to us. So if you try to get rid of it, you try to exchange it for something else, It's going to be God to you. And it may look like you. It may look like something you someone you idolize. It may look like something that you embrace is more important than anything else. 
We are driven to having something we pursue. And when it's not God, we create it to be an image that we want. And so as a result, there is this seed of reality that God places in all of us that is exposed throughout creation, as he says in this text, that makes each of us guilty. There are no excuses. His wrath is clearly evident by even what we see, that when there is something that is not done right, that there is something in our being that says, that's not right, that is not good, that is not holy, that is not just, even if you've never seen the written laws of God. So quite frankly, whether or not somebody has ever heard the name of Jesus or ever read the written code of God, God holds them in account. There are no excuses. What is being revealed by God? We're in creation right now. We're out in it. We're part of that creation. We are image bearers of the God. When he created mankind, it says he made us in his image to be like him. So we are reflections of him. But when we chose to deny him as God, then our character, which began with Adam, the first human being, that our character then became tainted and we were born into a corrupted nature. But yet, in spite of that corrupted nature, we might try to deny God, we might try to suppress that reality that God exists with our own selfish desires. We still cannot deny that when we truly take pause and we look around, we see humankind, we see the creation around us, that there's something about God's eternal power that we can grasp. It says that in the text, that through creation, his eternal power is evident to everyone, which means that to everyone, we can acknowledge that whoever created all of this is eternal and incredibly powerful. But it also says his divine nature is also evident to all people, regardless of whether or not they've seen the law. It, his divine nature is evident. That there's something about that we know that in this eternal, powerful God, there is a nature to him that is better than ours, complete, intact, perfect, or the word holy. If this is all true, then what does that mean for us? Well, in Romans chapter 2, if you can have this a Bible with you or you have a, an app, in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, it makes a comment here about those who do not have the written law. And it says this. It says, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have that written law do by very nature things required by the law. They are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. They haven't seen the right, right written text, but yet it's written on their hearts. And their consciences are bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them, saying that even without the written law, there is a conscience 
within us that says when we commit sin, we are guilty of violating God. We are guilty of violating God. So our conscience is what convicts us, and it causes an evaluation when we compare ourselves and we actually take the time to compare ourselves to the idea that there is an eternally powerful God whose divine nature is better than ours. It creates the question, then how is it possible for me to have relationship with God? How is it possible that I can satisfy God's wrath in such a way that he would not come against me? Well, with us knowing that there is nothing we can do, like who can truly live up to those Ten Commandments flawlessly? None of us could. We know that as a result that our character is eternally flawed. But there is an eternally flawless God. So how do we reconcile that? We know that we know that we are therefore in need of the mercy of God. And we also know and we know that 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 mercy of God has to be initiated by him because left to ourselves, we would always fall short. Well, the good news is this, that God knows this too. He knows that there is nothing you can do to satisfy his holiness. He knows there is nothing you can do to make yourself look right in his eyes, that on your final breath that you can come before him into eternity and say, I was good enough. He knows that that would not be a satisfactory answer. And he knows that good enough is not good enough. So what did God do? He started doing work on your behalf. In fact, he created a plan. He created a plan by which he would reconcile man back to himself. Even when Adam made his decision to separate himself from God and take on sin as part of his nature, God declared immediately, this is not the end of the story. I will create a way by where mankind will be reconciled back to myself. I will create a way. And so he began to communicate that there is a coming perfect lamb because God established early on with the law that the only way you can have temporary satisfaction between man and God was a blood sacrifice of a perfect lamb. But it was all temporal. It was never permanent. And so he built that in so that we could be educated to know that there needed to be something that was more final and permanent. And then God sent his one and only son, which you heard John 3, 16 Read, quoted, and sung today. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So the beauty of the story of God is this, that where we fall short, he fills the gap. He initiated the plan of sending his son who was equal to him, part of the triune God, sent him to earth to take on human skin, lived a perfect life without having sinned, and then chose to die, which is the penalty for sin, chose to die so that as the perfect lamb, 
His blood can cover all sin. And then we are told in Scripture that if you then have faith in the work of Jesus Christ, confessing your sins to him, and then trust in his work, it says that we are given salvation and we're given freedom away from that which would have condemned us. There is a passage in Hebrews 9.14, and my iPad overheated in the sun, so I'm going to have to read it off the screen. So if you could put it up there. It says, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? So that we may serve the living God. You see, even if we do not have the written law, our consciences tell us we're guilty, that we fall short, that we need intervention from God. But praise be to God, he supplied the perfect lamb in Jesus Christ so that his blood can cover that which we could not cover up for ourselves. And what does it do? It clears the conscience. Because then I know, because I have faith in the work of God through his son Jesus Christ, then I can know that I can approach God when my final breath happens on this earth because I have faith in that work. My conscience is clear that I know when I stand before God that I can say I can enter because I trust in the work that you've done, God, through your son Jesus. I trust in that work. I have faith in that work. My conscience is cleared. I come free and guiltless, not because of any of my work, but because of the work that is alone done by Jesus Christ. As to close the service, what I would ask is that everybody bow your heads and close your eyes in this moment. Some of you here, many of you here, have put your faith in Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior to trust in his work, to be the blood that covers your sin, that clears your conscience before God. But some of you came today and you've operated in denial. You've dismissed the reality of God's holiness. You've dismissed the reality that you fall short. And maybe today your conscience has been provoked. Would you today, in your heart, Commit yourself to Jesus Christ, acknowledging that you are a sinner and that God is holy and that God in his holiness and his love operated on your behalf and that you would receive that free gift that is done through Jesus. If you are willing to go through that journey, I'm going to pray a prayer that you can pray to yourself after me. And then you can, and part of this prayer, give your life to Jesus Christ. So Repeat after me in your heart, in that quiet breath, this prayer. Dear God, I acknowledge that you are holy and that I am not. That you are perfect in love and justice and I am not. And that I fall short and that I am never going to be good enough. But God... I want to cling to the work of your son, Jesus Christ, whose blood cover, can cover my sins. So would you forgive me of my sins? 
Wash me anew as I put my faith in your son, Jesus. Cleanse my conscience. Make me a new person. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time today, we would love to talk with you. I'm going to invite any of our pastoral team members that do not have a role right now to go to the welcome tent and be available. They'd be glad to talk with you. Elders will also be there. One of the beautiful things is that if you give your life to Jesus Christ, there's an opportunity then to proclaim that you've given your life to Jesus Christ. And that happens through baptism. If you would like to be baptized today, there will be elders over there willing and ready to hear your story of your faith and be able to walk you through the journey of what it means to give your life to Jesus. So this opportunity is for yours, for you, at the welcome tent to meet with a pastor or with one of the elders. We're going to close this service now. Would you be willing to stand, please? This incredible message of hope that Jesus has given us. We've got to respond to it. Let's respond in singing and in gratefulness to our Savior.
thank you for what you've given us this morning. We thank you that we can respond in gratefulness for who you are, for the message of hope, that there is a law, there is a right and a wrong. We believe that. And our conscience and our souls testify to that. And Lord, we don't measure up to that. But God, you have stepped in. You have saved us. We respond to that. We thank you for that. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. Praise the Lord that we could come out and just worship together. Praise Jesus. Yes, let's give a round of applause. I have so enjoyed worshiping with you all. And I love that the day's not over, that we have baptisms that we can share in community later today as well. Just a couple reminders. Uh, first, make sure you take a look at your bulletins for the schedule and the map of the park, just so that you know what's going on, where to find it, um, and as a reminder, the food trucks will be opening at 12.15 if you want to grab some, some food for lunch. Lastly, right after this, we're going to have baptisms. To your right, my left, in the water by the steps. If you are feeling the Lord stirring you to be baptized today, please visit the welcome tent. That Our elders would love to talk with you about baptism. It is such a beautiful representation of the saving work of Jesus. Romans 6 says that if we've been united with Jesus in a death like his, we will surely be united with a resurrection like his. And that baptism is to signify that. It represents when we go under the water, joining him in that death and coming out of that victory and resurrection in Jesus. Jesus. 